Good evening. My name is Emily Duffy, and on behalf of the Catholic Information Center, it's my pleasure to welcome you all here this evening. I'm delighted to introduce Jim Tonkowicz, author of The Liberty Threat. A writer, commentator, and speaker focusing on the role of religion in our public life, Jim is a regular columnist at The Stream and writes a daily devotional at breakpoint.org. In addition to writing, Jim serves at Wyoming Catholic College as Special Advisor to the President for Strategic Initiatives and Director of Distance Learning. Please join me in welcoming Jim Tonkowicz. Thank you. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. Speaking in Independence Hall in Philadelphia, Pope Francis said, in this place, which is symbolic of the American way, I would like to reflect with you on the right to religious freedom. It is a fundamental right which shapes the way we interact socially and personally with our neighbors whose religious views differ from our own. Religious freedom, he went on to say, certainly means the right to worship God individually and in community as our conscience dictates. But religious liberty, by its nature, transcends places of worship and the private sphere of individuals and families. Because religion itself, the religious dimension, is not a subculture. It is part of the culture of every people and every nation. Now, some might cynically say, the Pontiflex Maximus of the Catholic Church has a lot of nerve talking about religious liberty. I mean. Everybody knows, right, that the Catholic Church is the enemy of liberty, particularly religious liberty. I mean, what with the Crusades and the Spanish Inquisition and so on and so forth. Didn't we finally get religious liberty once we finally overthrew the authority of the Pope? And yet, as with so many things, once you examine the actual historic evidence, you find a different story, an unexpected story, and a largely untold story. The First Amendment of the Constitution reads, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The government, according to the Constitution, may not tell you what to believe or how to practice your faith nor may it tell churches what to believe and how to practice their faith. That's the free exercise the founders had in mind, free exercise in public as well as private. Now, where did the framers of the Constitution get that kind of a radical idea? And I'll never forget that even in the late 18th century, that was a radical idea. Some would argue that it came from the uh, Protestant Reformation, from the Enlightenment. Well, the irony is that while Catholics have had to fight for their religious liberty in this country, the ideas and ideals of American religious liberty are rooted not in the Reformation or the Enlightenment so much as they're rooted in the Catholic, in Catholic reflection on the nature of the individual, the state, and the church. So let me begin with the individual's religious liberty. Prior to Christianity, there really was no religious liberty. If you were a Canaanite, you worshipped Baal. If you were a Philistine, you worshipped Dagon. In, in Babylon, when the music started, 
you bowed down to this giant statue that Nebuchadnezzar uh, put up. You, well, you did have a choice. You could bow down to the statue or be thrown in the fiery furnace. Take your pick. There were no conscience clauses as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego discovered. Ancient kings saw religion as the force that bound family members to one another and a people to their ruler. Refusing to worship the national gods was worse than just bad theology. It was treasonous against family, against king, and against kingdom. And so the Roman emperors demanded that everyone sacrifice to the gods of Rome. You could, of course, have a list of your own personal favorites, but Jupiter, Minerva, the divine Caesar, and the rest were non-negotiable. Refusal to pour out a libation or put a pinch of incense into a fire could and did bring arrest, exile, imprisonment, torture, and or execution. This created a problem for the early Christians. Now some, it was a simple risk-reward analysis, and it convinced them that tossing a little insincere pinch of incense into a fire and mumbling something about the Roman gods was simply a prudential and simple way to stay out of trouble with the government. I mean, after all, they weren't gods anyway, were they? But for others, including many leaders in the church, it was idolatry, plain and simple. It was a big deal. It was Caesar encroaching on God's turf. And while they believed with St. Paul, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established, they also knew there was a point where, as St. Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. Christian persecution was not a constant and consistent fact of life in the Roman Empire. But beginning with Nero, who needed a scapegoat for the great fire that burned much of Rome in A.D. 64, Christians were subjected to dungeon, fire, and sword. I'm, they made an easy scapegoat. Christians were an unpopular and badly misunderstood minority. They ate body and blood. Sounds like cannibalism. They called each other brother and sister. Eh, it sort of sounds like incest. They had secret meetings. They didn't socialize with a lot of other people. They didn't worship the Roman gods. Mm, sounds like sedition. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote that when Nero began persecuting the Christians, quote, a vast multitude were convicted not so much of the charge of burning the city, but of hating the human race, close quote. St. Peter, our first pope, was martyred under Nero's persecution, and the next 31 popes, every pope until 314, was also martyred. You see, something happened by 314. Actually, three things happened. The church grew. Christians proposed a new way to think about church and state. And politics changed. First, the church grew. Because Christianity is an evangelistic faith, people came into the church. The Christian apologist and theologian Tertullian famously said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. 
He knew. He watched it happen. The deaths of Saints Polycarp, Ignatius, Clement, Agnes, Cyril, and others did not kill the church. Insofar as their deaths were united to the death of Jesus on the cross, their deaths were redemptive. Martyr, of course, is from the Greek word for witness. And through the evangelical witness of the martyrs, those who died, and the evangelical witness of those who lived, the church grew and grew, and the church grows and grows. Soon, Christians stopped becoming an abstraction, you know, the name for the dreaded other. Christians were friends, were neighbors, were merchants, were family members. They had names. They were liked, even loved by those around them. And at some point, even what, uh, regardless of what the authorities wanted to do, the populace wouldn't go along. So the first thing that happened was church growth. The second thing that happened was that Christians argued for an entirely new way of thinking about religion uh, and the state, what we today call religious liberty. During a period of persecution in the early third century, Tertullian wrote a letter to the Roman govern governor, Scapula. We worship one God, he wrote. You think others too are gods, whom we know to be devils. I, I, would, I would have left that part out if I was trying to impress a Roman governor. But nonetheless, Tertullian went on and listened to the language. It is a fundamental human right, a privilege of nature, that every man should worship according to his own convictions. One man's religion neither harms nor helps another man. It is assuredly no part of religion to compel religion, to which free will and not force should lead us. The sacrificial victims even being required of a willing mind. You will render no real service to your gods by compelling us to sacrifice, for they can have no desire of offerings from the unwilling unless they are animated by a spirit of contention, which is a thing altogether undivine. And forced religious conformity, he argued, had three big problems. Problem number one, it was contrary to what it means to be human. It is a fundamental right, a privilege of nature, that every man should worship according to his own convictions. And because it is a fundamental right, a privilege of nature, religious liberty comes before the state. Why? Because humans, because as humans, our relationship with God is prior to all relationships. Every human who ever lived has an obligation to God. But not all humans had an obligation to the Roman emperor, Attila the Hun, the king of France, or the United States. Problem number two, denying religious liberty is contrary to the nature of religion. What I believe I owe to God, or the gods, is between me and God, or the gods. With rare exceptions, it's none of the government's business how I discharge that obligation. So denying religious liberty is contrary to what it means to be human, contrary to the nature of religion, and finally the third big problem, said Tertullian, is it's contrary to the nature of the gods. 
real gods, he said, can have no desire of offerings from the unwilling unless they are animated by a spirit of contention, which means they're not gods at all. Possibly they're devils. Now, when we hear this, we should be amazed. Why? Because while we take religious freedom for granted as a fundamental right and a privilege of nature, until Tertullian showed up and talked about it, as far as I can tell, no one else ever did. This was completely new in the ancient world, and its source was Christianity. Now, I mentioned that persecutions uh, and stopped, and religious liberty for Christians grew for three reasons. Church growth, there were too many Christians. A new way of thinking, these ideas proposed by Tertullian. And finally, politics changed. Tertullian's insights were largely lost on scapula. Sporadic persecution continued throughout the empire. But stamping out Christianity has never been an option in Rome, in North Korea, in China, in Syria, or anywhere else. Why? Because Christ is building his church, and Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. By the early 4th century, the impossibility of getting rid of the Christian church by force was clear, even to most politicians. At the time, a Christian thinker named Lucius Lactantius took up the theme of religious liberty. And while Tertullian attempted to influence a hostile governor, Lactantius advised Constantine, who became emperor of the western half of the empire in 306 and the entire empire in 325. Politics changed. Lactantius, in his uh, uh, book, Divine Institutes on Defending True Religion Through Faith, Not Force, wrote this. Religion is to be defended not by putting to death, but by dying. Not by cruelty, but by patience. Not by an impious act, but by faith. For if you wish to defend religion by bloodshed and by tortures and by doing evil, you will not be defended, it will not be defended, but polluted and profaned. For nothing is so much a matter of free will as religion. You recognize the themes. Not only must true religion be free, he wrote, it must be believed from the heart. For how will God love the worshiper if he himself is not loved by him? Or grant the petitioner whatever he asks when he draws near and offers his prayer without sincerity or reverence. Religion has to be free. Well, Constantine agreed. The time had come for a new policy uh, concerning religion in general and Christianity in particular. So Constantine was a Christian, or at least pro-Christian, and the emperor Licinius from the east, who was a pagan, issued what has come to be called the Edict of Milan in 313. Now the Edict of Milan did not, as some people uh, mistakenly believe, make Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. That happened in 380. Uh, Emperor Theodosius I. Instead, the edict did something even more significant. Constantine and Licinius granted to the Christians and others full authority to observe that religion which each preferred. Anyone, the edict said, 
who wishes to observe the Christian religion may do so freely and openly without molestation. And then it gets even better. The edict explicitly allowed, quote, other religions the right of open and free observance of their worship for the sake of the peace of our times, that each one may have the free opportunity to worship as he pleases. The edict eliminated any and all coercion concerning religion, giving all people in the Roman Empire religious liberty, something that was unprecedented in the ancient world and is still rare today. Unfortunately, this bright supernova of religious liberty didn't last. Licinius went back to the East and reneged on it almost immediately. Constantine got involved in theological controversies and church issues, picking winners and losers. And sad to say, once Christians got the upper hand, they sporadically persecuted pagans. Nevertheless, Tertullian and Lactantius, Christian thinkers, put a new idea into play, an idea that emerged at the American founding. Now remember that the American founders, people like Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, uh, uh, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and so on, were a bunch of really smart people who were liberally educated. They knew Greek, they knew Latin, sometimes Hebrew, some of them knew Hebrew. They read the Bible, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, Cato, Julius Caesar, Plutarch, Thucydides, Sophocles, and the Church Fathers, Cyprian, Tertullian, Augustine, and others. We see it in the writing of Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson was one of the least Christian of the founders. Yet in his notes on the state of Virginia, Jefferson wrote, Our rulers can have authority over such natural rights only as we have submitted to them. The rights of conscience we never submitted. We could not submit. We are answerable for them to our God. And in the margin, next to those words, in his personal copy of notes, Jefferson jotted, in Latin, Tertullian's words. It is a fundamental human right, a privilege of nature, that every man should worship according to his own convictions. Tertullian said, one man's religion neither harms nor helps another man. Jefferson wrote, the legitimate powers of government extend to such acts only as are injurious to others. But it does me no injury for my neighbor to say there are 20 gods or no god. It neither picks my pocket nor breaks my leg. Now the story of why Jefferson and James Madison cared so much about religious liberty is much longer. And uh, I will shamelessly plug my book, The Liberty Threat, if you want to read about it. Nonetheless, their argument for religious liberty for individuals was not their own. And it was not from the Enlightenment or the Reformation. It came from the ancient Catholic Church. So that's religious freedom for individuals. Now what about religious freedom of the churches? I've already mentioned that Constantine insinuated himself into ecclesiastical and theological matters. 
Let me go on to say that he was first in a very long line of emperors to do the same thing, emperors who the, the popes had to fend off. For example, in 494, Pope Glacius I wrote a letter to the emperor Anastasius, slapping his hand while explaining church and state. There are two powers, august emperor, in which this world is chiefly ruled, by which this world is chiefly ruled, the sacred authority of priests and the royal power. There are, he said, two spheres, secular and sacred. This is a critical insight as we move through the Middle Ages and into the Reformation to the founding of America. It's a critical insight also for our struggles today. Seventy years before Galatius wrote, St. Augustine published City of God. Augustine argued that there are two cities, the city of God and the city of man, that share the same real estate and are totally enmeshed with one another until Jesus returns. Christians are citizens of both cities, and we have an obligation to work for the good of the city of man, particularly in the area of morals, in order to establish and preserve peace. The things of the city of man, however, are temporal and fleeting, while the things of the city of God are eternal and permanent. For that reason alone, it's clear that the city of man and the city of God should have separate spheres of authority. The church should not be deciding questions of building codes or insurance regulations, except insofar as these have moral and eternal implications, as, for example, laws about abortion, marriage, family, uh, immigration, criminal justice, and so on. The state should not be deciding questions of the real presence, the immaculate conception, or the importance of marriage for the church's theology, though it may insist the churches obey the building code. The obligation of all people is, to quote Jesus, always a good idea, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Matthew 21, or 22, 21. That immediately raises the question of what to do with a king, and let's just call him a king, though it may be an emperor, prince, baron, lord, president, earl. What do you do with a king who tramples the rights of his people and usurps the prerogatives of the church? What do you do when the king becomes a tyrant? Answer, you throw the bum out. Kings, the church taught, rule not by some divine right, an idea that we'll come to in a moment, but by the consent of the governed. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote, if to provide itself with a king belongs to the right of a given multitude, it is not unjust that the king be deposed or have his power restricted by the same multitude if, Becoming a tyrant, he abuses the royal power. It must not be thought that such a multitude is acting unfaithfully in deposing the tyrant, even though it had previously subjected itself to him in perpetuity, because he himself has deserved that the covenant with his subjects should not be kept, since, in ruling the multitude, he did not act faithfully as the office of king demands. 800 years ago, in the summer of 1215, 10 years before St. Thomas was born, 
In an English meadow called Runnymede, various barons and bishops forced their liege lord, King John, to sign the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta is a list of 63 royal commitments and concessions. King John had become a tyrant. He had to be stopped, and the bishops and barons stopped him. St. Thomas would have been very happy with that. Of course, as is the way with such parchment barriers, to use uh, James Madison's phrase, the kings didn't always abide by the rules. And by the early 1500s in England, the rules had been broken big time. And I'm going to concentrate on England because, of course, uh, it's England that then gives birth to the United States. King Henry VIII declared that he was head of the Church of England and that the Pope could go pound sand. Why did he do that? Well, first, he wanted a male heir. And his wife, Catherine of Aragorn, had given him only one child, and that was a girl named Mary. Henry wanted a son. And he was quite sure that if the Pope granted him an annulment and he could marry his mistress, Anne Boleyn, she would surely give him a male child. Turns out he was wrong, and marrying the king was a bad mistake for Anne Boleyn. But there was a second reason. Henry wanted to wage war against France, and he was very, very short on cash. His advisors pointed out that if he became the supreme head of the church in England, then all the church property belonged to him. Well, Henry, who had been named Defender of the Faith by uh, some years before by Pope Leo X, wasn't sure that was a very good idea, until he read On the Obedience of Christian Man and How Christian Rulers Ought to Govern by William Tyndale, the Bible translator and proto-Protestant. Tyndale argues that a king should rightly be head not only of the civil government, but the king should be head of the church within his realm. That is, Tyndale advocated the divine right of kings. The divine right of kings said, I'm the king because God made me king. And I am accountable to God and no one else, which is to say I'm accountable to my conscience and nothing else. Your job as my subjects is to shut up and do as you're told because God said so. And my oh my, it's good to be the king. Lots of people thought, uh, think that is a Catholic idea. I always had. Uh, but nothing could be further from the truth. The Catholic Church stood and stands against tyranny. The divine right of king invites, uh, kings invites tyranny and allows a monarch to turn even the church, even the way of salvation, into a department of government. With the Act of Supremacy in 1534, Henry did just that. England left the church, set up a national church with Henry as the head. Kings had wanted the church in their back pocket for centuries. Now, with the Protestant Reformation and the divine right of kings, the opportunity finally came, and Henry and others took it. Henry's goal was to consolidate all power in the English state 
that is, in the monarchy. And his exercise of the divine right of kings was the beginning of the powerful, centralized nation states that supplanted feudal Europe. All right, well, Henry VIII, of course, didn't live forever. Um, he didn't even outlive his sixth wife. Henry's heir was Edward VI, who was a young boy who was sickly and who died when he was 16. Edward's heir was Mary, the daughter of Henry and Catherine. Known as Bloody Mary, she tried to re-Catholicize England to the great delight of most of the English people and to the great chagrin of most of the English elite, many of whom had benefited financially in big ways from uh, getting rid of the Catholic Church. After five years, Mary died and Elizabeth, her half-sister, took the throne. Elizabeth was not religious. She was, however, a capable and efficient executive, some would say a tyrant. To her credit, she established stability in England at a time when religious wars were tearing apart Europe. But alas, she did it by force, by exercise of raw monarchical power. As head of the Church of England, she brokered the Elizabethan Compromise. She commissioned a new version of the Book of Common Prayer and a Statement of Faith, the 39 Articles. Then she told everyone, here's your prayer book, here's your Statement of Faith, do the prayer book, believe the Statement of Faith, and if you don't like it, you have me to deal with. That is, the Elizabethan Compromise was, you need to compromise because the Queen wasn't going to. Um, and, in fact, if you weren't Church of England, you were a traitor. Why she isn't known as Bloody Elizabeth is one of the mysteries of history and public relations, since, since she viciously and mercilessly persecuted Catholics. Faith of our fathers, living still in spite of dungeon, fire, and sword, was written about the English martyrs of that period. And again, their crime was not so much bad theology. Their crime was treason, submitting to the pope rather than the queen in all things religious. Well, Elizabeth died childless. And the next in line to be king of England was James, who was already king in Scotland. Now, James' mother was a Catholic. James had been baptized Catholic. And it was well known that James truly despised the Kirk of Scotland, the Scottish Church, uh, a Presbyterian and Calvinist church. It was hoped by Catholics on the continent that James would come back to the Catholic Church and bring England with him. But James, as it turned out, was rather fond of this notion of the divine right of kings. Being head of the Church of England suited him just fine. And while he allowed the dissenting Puritans to publish the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms and to translate the Bible that they dedicated to him, the King James Version, he continued to persecute Catholics. At this point, at the end of the 17th century, enter our hero, St. Robert Bellarmine, S.J. The man, uh, John Zmirak, in his book, the Bad Catholic's Guide to Wine, Whiskey, and Song, available here at the CIC, calls 
the Super Tuscan. Bellarmine, in his book De Laetis, his treatise on civil government, took on the theory of divine right of kings, and while as near as I can tell, he didn't add very much to what the church had already said about church and state, he wrote beautifully, forcefully, and caused a huge uproar among the divine right of kings-oriented kings of Europe. The divine right of kings said that the king ruled by the divine choice and was accountable to no one but God. Bellarmine wrote that while God was certainly central, the king ruled by consent of the governed and was accountable both to God and his subjects. In fact, if the king or his successors were tyrants, if he put himself above the law, the people, rather than lying down and taking it, had a right, yea, even a duty, to overthrow the king. Political power, wrote Bellarmine, emanates from God. Government was introduced by divine law, but the divine law has given power to no one particular man. Political power resides in the community, and because in order to survive, someone needs to be in charge, someone needs to be king. And from Bellarmine's perspective, it didn't need to be a king. It could be an aristocracy or a democracy, or better yet, some combination of those, sort of a um, three branches of government kind of approach. Interesting. Well, King James was so infuriated with what Bellarmine had wrote, had written, that he hired a theologian named Robert Filmer to refute Bellarmine point by point. And Filmer's book, Patriarcha, was published in 1680 and widely circulated. In refuting Bellarmine, of course, he had no choice but to quote Robert Bellarmine extensively. And that's the segue to 1776. Thomas Jefferson may or may not have read Robert Bellarmine. We're not sure. But we know for certain that he read Filmer. And he disagreed with everything Filmer had to say. But of course, in the process of reading, underlining, circling, and jotting margin notes, we have his copy of Patriarcha in the Library of Congress, he drank deeply of the thinking of Robert Bellarmine. Governments are instituted among men, wrote Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence, deriving their power from the consent of the governed. Well, that's what Bellarmine said. Jefferson went on. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, that is the ends of human equity and uh, inalienable rights, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute a new government. Again, that's what Bellarmine said. Regarding the two spheres of authority, we find in the First Amendment of the Constitution, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The limitation is on the civic sphere, not the religious. The amendment tells us what government may not do. It says nothing about the church or what the church may or may not do. And again, this is spot on with the Catholic teaching about church and state beginning before Augustine and culminating, at least at that point, with Robert Bellarmine. Now, in fairness, the founders relied heavily on John Locke. But you see, John Locke also read Patriarcha, hated Filmer's ideas, 
and loved Bellarmine's ideas. Locke also, we believe, read Delicius and therefore got his Bellarmine straight. Uh, and the founders, of course, read Locke. Now, of course, neither Locke nor any of the American founders would have owned up to getting their ideas from a Catholic, let alone a Jesuit. But that appears to be exactly what they did. So yes, religious liberty in the United States owes a debt to Locke and the Enlightenment. Yes, religious liberty in the United States owes a debt to the Protestant Reformation and the approach to scriptures. But a two-legged stool won't stand. You need a third leg. That third leg is the Catholic understanding of the relationship between church and state that reached its high watermark in the writing of Robert Bellarmine writing that John Locke, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, to name only three, I'm sure there were more, understood and applied. Thus, rather than being the enemy of freedom in general, and religious freedom in particular, we find that the tradition of the Catholic Church, we find in the tradition of the Catholic Church, the very ideas that made the great experiment in American religious liberty possible. And in defending religious liberty, Pope Francis, our bishops, and all of us stand on the shoulders of Catholic giants. Thank you. If you have any questions, just raise your hand. Hi, thank you. Thank you very much for being here. Um, it was really a, a fascinating uh, talk. And I guess my question is, recently you see a lot of, of kind of Catholic scholars I guess I'm thinking of George Weigel, wonder aloud about the present day state of the United States and with the collapse of Protestantism, they say America is in essentially a post-Protestant environment. And there's debate about whether or not Catholicism intellectually can kind of step in and provide sort of an intellectual philosophical guide for the country moving forward. And there's, there's a real debate back and forth as to whether or not the founding principles are incompatible or whether the founders built better than they knew. And it seems like your, your thesis is really a, a cause for hope in that debate. Is that, is that right? Yeah, I, I, th I think that the, uh, the founders did build better than they knew. Um, I, think that, um, I think that much that was in the founding was uh, living on the fumes of the Catholic intellectual tradition. And um, the, you know, we've been for years living on the fumes of this sort of just general lowest common denominator uh, Christian, the fumes of lowest common denominator Christianity beginning in the mid-1800s. And uh, those fumes are pretty much exhausted. Now, does the Catholic intellectual tradition have the horsepower to do it? Oh, no question, from my point of view. Is it possible to do it? <laughs> From the Catholic intellectual point of view, that remains to be seen. That's a different question. I mean, we certainly the, the, the intellectual tradition um, uh, certainly has the horsepower. Now, can we convince people? Uh, is the uh, somebody somebody the other day uh, was talking about wicked problems? People know what wicked problems are. I've never heard this idea before. It's a problem where. You know, you, it's like it's like an onion. Well, you solve, or yeah, it looks like it's a problem here. Well, so you solve that problem. Oh, there are three other problems. We well, solve those, and there are more problems. And and it it it's you know it's 
we have a wicked problem in this country, with not just with religious liberty, but with a lot of things. Um, in order to care about religious liberty, you have to care about religion. You have to think that at least on some level, religion is important. Well, that, that's a battle right there, um, you know, certainly among elites, uh, among, uh, among, I think, average people. You, you, you have to convince people that believing something rather than anything uh, is a value. Well, that's a big battle. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, thank you for, for a very interesting talk um, and uh, uh, you know, a lot of provocative ideas in that. Uh, one that stands out to me, of course, is the uh, tracing to the early church the ideas about religious liberty, religious uh, freedom, and so on. The question that comes to my mind then after that is if these are circulating in the early church, why is it that we find relatively quickly, you know, from a historical perspective, a lot of these things being abandoned? Famously, St. Augustine, earlier in his career, uh, uh, advocates religious liberty, but then backs away from that position when the empire proscribes uh, Donatism and, and so on. And of course, he's not alone in this. So what is it that brings about that change? And uh, what resources are there in the Catholic tradition, would you say, to, uh, to rebut that tendency in some Catholic theology? Um, good, th that's a very good question. Uh, and. Uh, what went on in, in Christian Europe is, some, is a historic anomaly. You, whether it was, even, even by, even by uh, uh, 494, um, Emperor um, Anastasius would have seen himself as a Christian ruler ruling over a mostly Christian people. And certainly once you get into, you know, further along, almost everybody in Europe is a baptized Christian. And certainly all the rulers of Europe are baptized Christians. Now, um, that changes, well, that changes everything. Um, I, I, I stood right here <laughs> about four and a half years ago, and Father Arnie asked me, do I believe all the things that the Catholic Church teaches? And the answer is yes. Um, well, if I am, uh, and then uh, at Wyoming Catholic College, I've taken the oath of uh, fidelity to the magisterium. This is somebody who teaches for the college. If I'm not living up to that oath, if I'm contradicting the teachings of the church, uh, whether it's Father Arnie or my parish priest or, or somebody in, in Wyoming, has a responsibility, has a duty to pull me aside and tell me that I'm teaching wrong. That is, I have ceded my religious liberty to be a part of the church. So you have, um, in, you had in Europe at that time, this church and state weren't united, but they were kind of on the same team. And the, 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 the church was, uh, was responsible to, for helping you to, to, or to help you to, follow God's laws, the church discipline to follow God's laws, which were presumably instantiated in the civil law. And the, and the king was helping, trying to get you to obey the civil law, which was a reflection of God's law. So you had this thing kind of working together. Um, you had that, plus you had a real sense that heresy 
is the greatest crime. And uh, simple illustration, I mean, if, it, you know, if I pull out a gun and shoot you, well, then you're dead. <laughs> and on the other hand, you were going to die anyway. So I've just hastened the day. Now, if you are in good fellowship with the church and with Christ, um, you, know, you are going to end up in heaven. And that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Now, well, I've done a terrible thing by shooting you, but nonetheless, uh, there's a happy ending. Now, on the other hand, if I start preaching heresy to you and draw you away from Christ and draw you away from the church, well, you can live a wonderful life for one, two, three, five hundred years. And when you die, you end up in hell forever. So clearly, heresy and preaching heresy is a worse crime than murder. Now, if, if, if you, you have those things working together, heresy is this horrible thing that, that, that leads people to damnation. And church and state are working together uh, in ways that are, again, a historical anomaly. It will never happen that way again. Um, you can see how the idea of, you know, there was certainly toleration for some heresy and some differences of opinion, but, um, but it really broke down. Um, it really came to the point where you, you had, beginning with Augustine, with the Donatists, and certainly Aquinas, um, uh, and uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the crusade against the Albigensians, uh, where heresy was, uh, you know, was just not tolerated. Now, the Reformation came along, and this, historic, this historical anomaly just went away. I mean, it, it was gone, and it took everybody a long time to get used to that idea. Everybody had the Christendom model in their head. Uh, the Peace of Westphalia uh, that ended the religious wars um, ended with the rule that said, Who, uh, whoever's the ruler, it's his faith. So if you lived, uh, if your king was Catholic, you were Catholic. If one day he decided to be a Lutheran, well, you were Lutheran. Well, I don't want to be a Lutheran. Well, it's tough beans. You know, it's the, doesn't matter. So the whole system worked that way. What, what Henry and Elizabeth and so on were doing, they, they were doing that elsewhere in Europe. Uh, and it came over to this country as well. Um, the Puritan, uh, Puritans and the pilgrims, you know, everybody said, well, the pilgrims came here for religious liberty. Yes, they came here for their religious liberty, not anybody else's. Uh, they came so that they could run the show, civil and religious. So you had this Christendom model that developed, and over time, you know, that's kind of fallen apart and been rethought uh, to where we are now. But, uh, but it, was, I, it, it was just, an, I think, an accident of the history. So thank you for your talk. And I kind of want to jump off of that. So if the I, how can you, how can, say, an individual and then a community integrate their faith into public life and discourse and civil, like voting and running for office? while still respecting, in, in this country, a sort of fragmentation of different faiths or no faiths, or, and I'm specifically thinking this summer of the gay marriage, um, that drama that played out with us. Like you have people from the Catholic faith saying, well, we would like the ideals to have civil law reflect moral uh, God's law, but then you have atheists or even people who may, religious people, like certain forms, Protestants say, well, we are okay with that in our faith. So how would you reconcile those kinds of differences? I, I think that what we, Father Richard John Newhouse, um, 
used to uh, wrote a book called The Naked Public Square, the idea that uh, the naked public he wasn't he wasn't he wasn't in favor of this, but the idea that the public square should have no religious influences at all because it's neutral, which of course it's not. But uh, and Father Newhouse would would say you know we're against the naked public square, but we don't want the religious public square. We're the only people who can talk in public and be in part of the conversation of the religious people. We are looking for the civil public square, where all points of view can be heard and listened to without yelling and screaming and uh, uh, constant ad hominem attacks, and where we can listen to each other and hear each other and deliberate with one another. And I, and I think that's what the American founders had in mind. So I think that's the first step. We need to try to pray that there would, you know, that, that there would be civil discussions. The other is I, I believe that we need to... Um, We need to be good neighbors uh, to those around us, even if they're not good neighbors back. I mean, again, one of the things that happened in the early church is that people got to know these Christians and realized that they were not such bad people. Now, we are fragmented socially within our neighborhoods and communities, and, and it, it's hard to get to know neighbors, or at least that's certainly that's been my experience. Um, but we need to make that effort and... Um, and through the practice of uh, kindness, through the practice of charity, through the practice of hospitality, um, you know, we need to get to the point where people see us, you know, not as the dreaded other, uh, but as human beings who are actually, you know, kind of sane. Um, I, I was uh, 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 for 20 years I was a, uh, a Presbyterian minister, and I had a friend who. Um, he had a, they, he was South American, and they had a real family history with the church. And he hated priests. He hated priests. But he got to know me. Um, and it didn't seem to be kicking and screaming, but I guess it kind of was. And after he got to know me pretty well, every once in a while he'd look over at me and kind of poke me. He goes, I can't believe you're a minister. Well, that's, you know, I, I want... I, I want those pagan neighbors to be saying, I can't believe you're a Christian. You're such a nice, normal person. Um, and, uh, and, who, who, who interact, and, and so I think we have to have a witness of interacting with people civilly uh, and, and with kindness and with real love uh, and compassion.